The views and opinions of this program are those of its host and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of 90.1 FM, KKFI, Midcoast Radio Project, or its staff and volunteers. Welcome to Jaws of Justice Radio on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. It's Monday morning. My name is Terry. Today, host David Bell speaks with Kimberly Shaw Ellis, a retired Kansas City, Missouri police officer. They will ask us, how can we be empathetic and coexist in multiple worlds when those worlds appear oppositional to each other? David and Kimberly will discuss common misperceptions between the police department and the community and in particular, the LGBTQ plus community. How can we use empathy to make everyone feel safe? We'll play the calendar at the midpoint of our hour. Strong relationships of mutual trust between police agencies and the communities they serve are critical to maintaining public safety and effective policing. Police officials rely on the cooperation of community members to provide information about crime in their neighborhoods and to work with the police to devise solutions to crime and disorder problems. Similarly, community members' willingness to trust the police depends on whether they believe that police actions reflect community values and incorporate the principles of procedural justice and legitimacy. On Jaws of Justice, we examine how to find justice in our society. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Now, our show. This is David Bell, and you're listening to Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. Today's guest is retired police officer Kim Shaw Ellis. She was with law enforcement for 33 years. 23 of those were spent with KCPD. And today we're going to talk about empathy, and particularly how walls are built up and then broken down from someone who has occupied different spaces in our community, some of which appear to be oppositional to each other. And with that, we welcome Kim to the show. Kim, thanks for being here. Thanks. I'm, I'm happy to be here. I know you started out your career in law enforcement with the Air Force. 1987 through 1991. And you were military police. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things that we talked about was how walls are built up. You were interrogated by OSI, which is, I guess, the, what, detective agency of the Air Force? Yeah, like internal affairs for the military, yeah. And when you were describing it to me, and I'd ask to describe it for our listeners, you're in an interrogation room and you're being interrogated about what? Well, at the time, you being, if if they found out were gay, you they, they would at the least give you a dishonorable discharge, but they could, or they also were putting people in prison for it. But you weren't being interrogated about you, you were being interrogated about someone else. Right. And I assume you had, was it a few people that are in the interrogation room with you, kind of peppering you with questions, or one person, or? There was only one guy in there talking to me. It was like an interview, interrogation kind of thing. At the time, you were not open about your sexuality, is that right? Right, I couldn't be. You couldn't be. Yeah. And so what I wanted to use that experience, if it's okay with you, to help me understand what goes through your mind and your body in a situation like that and how walls are built up. I know that's an extreme form there where you're sitting and being interrogated. I assume fear's gotta be one one aspect of it. Huge, yeah, it's terrifying. Terrifying to face something like that just for being who you are or who you love. It's it's a hard thing to you know grasp that, that, that that's real. But at the same time, it's being done by a group that you're part of. You had to voluntarily sign up for, you had to take an oath in that moment then where you're wearing the uniform of an organization who is now putting you in a really just an uncomfortable, they're almost putting you on the out, if you will. One group is who you are mm -hmm. as a person, and maybe who maybe the Air Force is who you are as a person. And, and so on externally, these two groups appear in conflict, but mm -hmm. but within you, they, they can't be. You have to survive as a human being. You know, I think there's a lot of stuff that's going on there. Just like you said, I think there's a whole lot of things. A lot of it is, was my age too. You know, I was only 19 when I went into the military. So I was still struggling with that for my own self. And you're taught your whole life. We only know what we know and that's all we know, right? We know things from our family. We know things from television or whatever it was at the time. We know things from 
religion. We know things from friends. We know things from family friends. We know, and so we learn based on all of that exterior information that's coming in who who we are in the world, who how we belong and fit in the world or don't. Depends on what we learn about ourselves, right? And so, as you as you get older, you you point in a direction of, of who you want to be and, and what you want to do in life. And, and certainly who I wanted to be wasn't somebody who would be ostracized and hated by the world or, or even criminalized. Mm-hmm. That's not what I wanted to be. What I wanted to be was somebody who, who makes a difference in the world and helps others and protects others and keeps people safe. And so my path was strong. You know, it was a calling to, to do the right thing for others and for the world. And if that meant having to hide who I am or try to change who I am in order to fit that mold, I think that's kind of where I was at that stage of my life. I think that's kind of where I was in, in, in that growth period. So coming to terms with that looked a whole lot like just trying to be somebody else, trying to be, trying to fit, trying to not be who I am at my core and in my heart with regard to who I love and being being gay, but also to to do what I, I felt was the right thing to do and to be who I thought was the right person to be to make a difference and help others. And so if that meant, I think the reconciliation was difficult because it was a, it's a battle because you're literally trying to be somebody you're not in order to to fit in what you think you have to be. And that's a hard, hard space to be. It takes a lot of energy. You know, it takes, it's, it's constant. It takes a lot of energy to try to be someone you're not and feel like the person you are is there's something wrong with you. And certainly when I'm brought in to be interrogated, that just reaffirms how wrong it is to be who I am. It seems to me you bring up a good point that the energy to, to keep that up, the energy to to do what you're talking about, it, it, it sounds like it's enormous. It would be tiring in and of itself to maintain that. And then the other thing I was thinking about is, is that energy, the use of the energy for that and, and the cost of it takes away from all the other wonderful things potentially mm-hmm. that you could have contributed at that moment in your life. When you try to estimate cost to you at that time from having to maintain that balance how would you describe it it's lost energy but what else is it just stress is it anxiety is oh, it everything i mean you know anxiety is real you know when you're when you're concerned at any moment that someone might find out this thing about you that albeit a privilege i push beneath the surface or others who identify as lgbtq hold beneath the surface for fear of what that might look like if someone finds that out that takes a lot of energy but also for me personally you know, what that looked like was not re-enlisting. And I would have been career military. I have no doubt. I loved it. I loved every bit of it. I loved the uniform. I loved the pride, of the, being proud to, to, to serve my country, being proud to, yeah, to stand up and, and help others. Like that was, that's who I am at my core. So it took a lot of energy to away from that for sure. And so when my enlistment was up, in 1991, I didn't re-enlist, and that was why. That was the only reason why, because I was so scared that that people would find out, and so I got out because I didn't I didn't want bad things to happen. So I decided to take the civilian route. And so you you didn't re-enlist, and then where did you go after after Air Force? So then I went to Denver Sheriff's Department. And then you eventually came to KCPD mm-hmm. after a few years. Yeah, about six years. I came in ninety in nineteen ninety eight. Then I came to Kansas City, Missouri, to be a police officer here. And what drew you to being a police officer? My heart. You know, I I literally live my my spirit, my heart, my soul is to to help others feel safe. I feel every single person deserves to feel safe and protected. Yeah, that's my heart. How is it that as an officer you helped people feel safe or, or be safe? By seeing people, by by meeting people where they are, by seeing them, by showing compassion, by listening, by believing that what they say is important to hear, by making some sense out of chaos, by treating people with respect and dignity, whether that mean 
putting the handcuffs on and taking them to jail or, or whether that mean making them feel safe and, and putting clothing on them because they're not clothed. What, whatever that means, doing everything I can in a moment to help someone feel in that moment that they're not, that they don't need to be f- fearful. So it doesn't mean not doing the job. It doesn't mean accepting bad behaviors. It doesn't mean letting people go or letting, it means not allowing bad behaviors, but not treating people badly in the process. It also means that when someone is fearful in a moment, maybe they're having a mental health crisis or they're a victim of violence or or they're a witness and they're scared to say something because of retaliation, whatever that looks like, being a person in that moment to say, I see you and I hear you and I'm not going to make it worse. And what does that look like for you? And so that sounds a lot like what we've been talking about is empathy and how you how you understand and maybe based on your own personal experience, but how you translated that into understanding where others may come from, particularly others with different backgrounds yeah. than you. How is it that you, you know, Kim Shaw Ellis from a particular background would be able to relate to someone who, at least on the face of it, may have nothing in common with you? I think we all have something in common and that we all know what it feels like to be sad. We all know what it feels like to be scared. We all know what it feels like to be loved and to love. We all know what it feels like to be fearful and anxious and worried and concerned. We all know what it feels like. We all know those emotions. I, I don't I don't have to know your journey to see or to walk in your shoes to see that your souls are worn. M- mine are too. It doesn't mean that I've experienced the same experiences you've had, but I've experienced things that have, have caused me to know what it feels like to be fearful, that that I know what it feels like to hurt or be lonely or be sad or or to lose someone. I know those feelings, and I can relate to you that way because we're human. I can see you there because we're human. I can connect with you that way because we're human. And when I can connect with you in that space, in that moment, that allows me to not hate you. When I can see you, it, it makes it so much harder to hate you. And the unexpected byproduct is, is if I see you, then I'm also letting you see me. And if you see me, it's harder for you to hate me too. And that's how we come together, I think. And I think we don't do that. I think we all walk around with, these, with armor and shield because we're fearful. We're fearful that one might see that very thing we're scared of showing, which is that we're worried, we're concerned, we're sad, we're scared, we're all the things. We carry, we, we, we shield ourselves so that others can't see that. But by doing that, we also don't see others. And if we don't see others, then we make decisions based on what we believe them to be, based on how they look, based on their, their circumstances, based on whatever. Because if I don't see the human in, in that moment, then I, I make a decision based on what I've learned this to be, just like you would if I'm wearing my uniform. You're going to treat me and see me how you believe you should, based on what you've learned, the uniform means to you. You have no idea who I am in that uniform. And if I don't let you see me in that moment, if I don't connect with you, if I don't show you that compassion and that care and that concern and that empathy, and I'm not talking kumbaya, I'm not talking running around and, and you know, singing songs. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about seeing you as a dog on human being. If I don't let you, if I don't do that, then I'm not letting you see me that way. And if you don't see me that way, then you're only going to treat me based on what you believe the uniform to mean to you. And that's not fair to either of us. But but certainly I would think that, and I'm just thinking of the you know, standard officer, you're, maybe you're wearing a, your vest on the outside of your, of your uniform. You've got a gun. You've got potentially a taser. I would think that not just my perception, but, but just the uniform and the utility belt and everything you put on has to have a certain psychological effect on you because you're going out potentially into a battle situation every day. And I know some people talk about, you know, just making sure you survive the day. And it seemed like that mentality would be would be contrary or sure would make it a heck of a lot more difficult to empathize in the way you're talking about. It's a lot of armor. So how do you how do you suit up at the same time allow yourself to be vulnerable? I think it takes a level of confidence. I think it takes a level of training and of trust of oneself. And, and also it's a tactical operation. Like if it being, seeing each other, me seeing you sh- teaches me a lot about you. 
I can see emotions. I can see fear. I can see concern. I can see worry. I can see anxiety. I can see those things. And that helps me know, maybe in this moment, what you might be able, willing to do. Because if you're in a place of fear, you're going to be more likely to act out to protect yourself from that thought process or in, in the thought process of sure. needing to protect yourself. So if I recognize that this is what's happening, if I can de-escalate that concern and that worry and that anxiety in that moment, that makes me safer. But if I, if I don't make the effort to see you, to understand what's happening for you, to listen, to believe that what you're telling me is important for me to hear, to give that to you and to try to get your needs met safely in that moment, if I'm not listening to what you're telling me you're, you're afraid of or you're needing or you want whatever, if I'm not paying attention to that, I'm just dismissing it as if it's of no value. And if you are of no value to me, that puts me in a dangerous situation because then I'm becoming part of that problem. I help escalate then in that sense. And I, sh I teach you that your anxiety, your fear, your worry, concern about me in this moment and who I'm going to be in my uniform has just been validated because I, in fact, I've just taught you I don't value you at all. You don't matter to me. And if you don't matter to me, then one of two things is going to happen. Either you're going to get bigger and louder and stronger and teach me and show me that uh, you need to matter to me and your needs need to matter to me, or you're going to get, you're going to just shut down. And, and then I'm not going to be able to get you to work with me at all in any way. The way you've described empathy, it, it very much sounds like another tool on your, on your tool belt. Meaning at the minimum, it results in me understanding where you're coming from. And what I hear you, as you've described it, that empathy is a form of self-preservation as well. Oh, a thousand percent. It's a tactical operation, if you, if you think of it that way, in, in law enforcement. You know, it's been my, in my entire career, I, I feel like I have, honestly, I feel like I have fought this battle of this, this kindness is weakness thing. And empathy is weakness thing. You know, in this, this career has been such a, the people who are seen on the highest esteem or the highest level are the, are the, the, the physical strong tack officers that just go kick doors and just take name. That's what it's felt like, you know, but I, I came from a long time ago. I mean, let's, let's, 33 years is a long change, a lot of change in a career, but that's always what has felt like has been the most valued are the people who can just kick people's asses, like right. really. And I feel like my, my skill set of, of learning to have to communicate effectively because I'm small in stature. And so very early on, I had to start to develop a skill set for survival. And that looks a whole lot like really learning and understanding how to get people to want to do that which I need them to do. Because if you can get somebody in, in, this, prof in this profession, in this career, if you would get somebody to want to do that which you need them to do, there's no resistance. And, and bonus, built a relationship of trust and, and legitimacy and, and, and seen as not the enemy now, but as, as someone who's working together with someone for a common goal. And I, I wouldn't necessarily call it manipulation, but it really does look a whole lot like listening to what benefits another person, what they're telling you they need, what's important to them and try to get that need met while getting your objective met. You had to develop these other techniques if you were gonna survive. Why do I see certainly a number of officers, not all, but some feel the need to lead with the image of force first? I do think that that's a difficult question to answer because there's no black and white in this, this career for a second. There are situations where you absolutely have to escalate to whatever that level of, of danger is in that moment in order to restore peace and order. And I think that there are so many levels between zero, zero need for any type of, of force except for just the presence of that uniform, which we call command presence, and all the way up to having to go in with, with guns blazing to a, a, an active shooter situation. So I think it, it really depends, David, on the situation that you're entering. But what I have learned in my career is that the vast majority of situations do not require having to come in guns blazing. Every single thing we do involves some sort of interaction and communication with others. And then I think what that might look like is what does that communication need to be? Does that communication need to be coming in with guns blazing, 
having to get people physically controlled in that moment because if we don't, someone will die, that looks a lot different than walking in just kind of trying to work with folks, figure out what's going on, maybe try to resolve a dispute. When you have a secure scene, when you have a scene where people are actively engaging in violence, that is the time to pay attention to what you can do to help someone get their needs safely met in that moment so then you don't become part of the problem and you then in yourself don't escalate. So how do we get buy-in from people who maybe feel like their physicality is what they need in order to just do this job. That's challenging, but I think that culture dictates that. I think when we shift our culture, as I believe it looks like we're kind of doing now, somewhat to benefit us and somewhat to our detriment, but I think that when people value good communication skills, empathy, compassion, when they value that as a tool on your tool belt to to be valued just as much, if not more, than any other tool. We spend time, intention, effort, energy in building that skill set and that tool. And then people start to have to do that and recognize that they need to be good at that in order to do this job. That's a culture shift. That's education. That's intention. But that's buy-in from the whole community. That's a buy-in from law enforcement as a whole. That's when I think things are going to change in a very positive direction, not just for law enforcement as a whole, but for the community we serve. When we can build relationships of trust and legitimacy, then we will have power that's given to us instead of power we feel like we have to take. Does that make sense? Wait, absolutely. And that's when, that's when we're going to have a safe community. I believe, I really do. Because then people will invest in us because they'll feel the trust and the relationship and the desire and the need and know that we're doing the right thing for the right reasons, period. Like, they will look to us and when, when we do have to use force, we do have to use deadly force, we do have to do these things, people then, it will shift and people will say, gosh, whoo, that person must have done something really bad for that officer to have to do that. Instead of what we've taught the community to believe historically, which is, Ooh, yeah, I, I think that officer is just doing what they, you know, feel like they want to do to that person. Like, people look to us as the villain. And, and this is a noble career. There are so many of us, so many of us, the vast majority of us whose heart is to be servant protectors. That is the vast majority of the brothers and sisters I've had the privilege to work beside. And it, it breaks my heart to see so many of them die by their own hand because they feel villainized when we would literally be willing to take a bullet for a random stranger. That's heartbreaking, but it's real. It's real. And we've got to embrace that. And we've got to evolve through this. And we have to start listening and we have to start showing people we're trustworthy. And that looks like building relationships of trust. That looks like showing up. That looks like listening. That looks like believing that what we're hearing is important for us to know. And that looks like meeting the challenge and rising up to it. There are so many things about a police officer that are important that they have to have a good skill set. We have to be good at everything. We have to, because, you know, if we have to discharge our firearm, by God, we better not miss. Sure. So we've got to spend hours and hours and hours and hours of training. And, and if we get into a room anywhere we go, there's a gun involved because we bring it. So we have got to be able to retain that weapon. And when we do have to put our hands on somebody, we better not hurt them unnecessarily, like doing a wrong technique. But along the way, effective communication skills, empathy, compassion, building relationships of trust, that seems to get put by the wayside because we have to spend so much time, effort, energy, and driving. In, and, and those are real. I'm not saying they're not important. You got to be superhuman. I, I want you, yeah. Cam, to go into a situation. Legitimate. I want you to make people feel welcome and, and at home, but I want you to be ready at a moment's notice to kick some ass if you need to, mm -hmm. but not to kick it too much, just enough to get that person right. into custody. Mm -hmm. And then I want you to go back and be empathetic with the the, the family. I mean, right. I, I just, I, I as you describe this person, this ideal police officer, I, I, I support you in that. I just, it almost sounds like an impossibility. It's very challenging. And I think for me, that's the most reward in this career is 
is being able to show up even under the greatest amount of stress and even in crisis when you're in crisis mode. And I think that's also where we're coming to learn that our own mental health is extraordinarily valuable and res building resilience. And that's not something that's been valued as law enforcement. Like, I know you just had a bad thing happen. I know you just saw something horrible. I know you just this or that. Deal with it. Move on. Just right. move on. Right. And that's how I grew up. That's how I've learned to to police. That's how I've learned to just be as a human being. And at, you know, at a pretty significant cost to my own well-being, but that's what we've had to do, yes. And I think what we're seeing is it doesn't work. It doesn't work because we're human. Sure. We're not machines. And since we're not machines, we have emotions and needs and fears and concerns and triggers and stress and all of the things that happen. And we see things that no one else should have to see ever in their life. And, and we take that so others don't have to. And to me, that is the nobility of the profession. But it's also the thing that destroys our humanness. We're talking to retired police officer Kim Shaw Ellis about empathy and how powerful a tool it can be for law enforcement. When we come back, we'll further our discussion and we'll also talk about the other side of empathy, the cost of being empathetic, particularly in a career which requires you to witness pain and suffering day in and day out. This is Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. Did you know your business or organization could be sponsoring this episode of Jaws of Justice Radio? Learn more at kkfi.org slash marketing. KKFI is hiring. We are now accepting applications for a bookkeeper office administrator at KKFI's office at 39th and Main in Midtown, Kansas City. This is a full-time, 32 hours per week position that is responsible for supporting the administrative and financial needs of our growing organization. For more details, including required skills and how to apply, please go online to kkfi.org org forward slash jobs. Hello, this is Joseph Jackson. Join me on Caltown Conversations where we will discuss matters that impact your life as a resident of the Kansas City metropolitan area. Every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. right after Democracy Now! And here's the calendar for the week of May 22nd. Legal Aid of Western Missouri can provide free civil legal services to low-income and vulnerable people who live in Jackson County, Missouri. Interested individuals can call 816-474-6750 to apply. That's 816-474-6750. For Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense virtual meetings this week, please go to momsdemandaction.org. All are welcome, mothers and others. Please check the calendar at moresquare.org for events you can attend. They're having local ambassador training this week. Tuesday, May 24th, 6.30 p.m., there's a forum for KC Council 3rd, 4th, and 5th District at-large candidates. And Wednesday, May 25th at 6.30, there's a forum for Kansas City Council 1st, 2nd, and 4th in-district candidates. Both are online events hosted by the League of Women Voters Greater KC. Your vote matters. Learn about candidates for the Kansas City Council on your June 20th ballot. Find more info at Facebook for League of Women Voters of Greater Kansas City. Thursday, May 25th, 7 p.m., Missourians for Alternatives to the Death Penalty is having their monthly meeting. Learn more about clemency campaigns, legislative updates, and pending cases. To register, find information, please go to Facebook, Missourians for Alternatives to the Death Penalty. Monday, May 29th, 11 a.m., is the annual Memorial Day Remembrance. You can march walk, or bike past the Kansas City-Missouri National Security Campus from Prospect to Missouri Highway 150. At 12 p.m., there's a rally with memories of hundreds or more who suffered from toxins at the old nuke parts plants, and some will do civil obedience by crossing the property line at the entry road, 14510 Botts Road. 
just north of Missouri Highway 150. Those not wishing to do the one-mile walk will be driven at 11 a.m. or earlier from Prospect to 14501 Botts Road for the noon rally. More information at PeaceWorks KC. A list of services, meals, and hotlines are available at Lawrence Progressive Calendar blogspot.com. That list is updated daily. Items listed in this calendar can also be found on this episode's page as well as on the Jaws of Justice Facebook page. Please take care of yourselves and others. Thanks for listening to Jaws of Justice. Let's return to the program. This is Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. Our guest today is Kim Shaw Ellis. She's a retired police officer. In the first half hour, we talked about empathy and its use as a tool for law enforcement. As we ended the half hour, we were starting to talk about the cost of it. And, and in this half hour, we're going to explore that. And, and Kim, as I, think about, as I think about having to see pain and suffering day in and day out, I know there's a cost there. I know there's a personal cost. There's a personal cost of, of anxiety, of, of potentially depression. You've, you've spoken about some of the pain that that are experienced by officers as having to see it and feel it. And certainly you almost would have to put up a wall in order to survive. And, and so could you tell us a little bit about those costs? And It makes it so much harder to have compassion. It makes it so much harder to have empathy. It makes it so much harder to feel vulnerable. And to get back to that question you were asking about how do you do that? How do you, like, with the building, the walls, and, you know, the walls are so much armor. Yeah, that's how it happens. You are hurt over and over and over again. You see trauma, 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 firsthand trauma, secondary trauma, listening to other people's stories. It takes a toll. And a lot of people, all of us, have to build walls to that to some degree to survive because it's not natural to, to, to endure that. So what we're starting to learn now is we have to, we have to also have a skill set of learning how to manage that in a healthy way. I have lost count. I, I, I've never even, I, I, I can't, I wonder what the percentage is of officers who suffer from alcoholism, from feeling like they have to have violence in their own homes, who have eaten their own guns, who have, who go home and have divorced, such a high divorce rate. It's unbelievable. It's because at some level you have to shut down as a human being in order to do, you feel like you have to shut down as a human being in order to just get through a day at this job. That's what those barriers and those, those walls look like. And when we start to embrace that and understand that and start to learn a skill set for coping with that in a healthy way, that helps us be more empathetic. That helps us be able to have compassion and feel more vulnerable. That helps us to overcome that, but we have to have resiliency to do that. It hurts to see people suffer. And if you care about people, that's hard to see day in and day out. You have to build a wall up to that. Well, you have to look, start to look at people as not human in some way in order to just cope with that. And that's not healthy, and it's not good for the community, and it's not good for relationship building, and it's not good for that individual and that moment you're coming into contact with. I love your description and the words you're using, because I'm really getting to understand in a way I haven't before, and I've been in the criminal justice world for 20 years now, and I've worked with officers, but the way in which you're describing it, I, I just, I can't thank you enough. And, it, and it, it seems like just as empathy is a form of self-preservation and maybe a, a higher form in that it maybe leads to better outcomes overall, I could see this other thing, this this putting a wall up is necessary, at least initially it sounds like, if, if they're the skill set's not there for otherwise, as a form of self-preservation. But then, by doing that, you put yourself potentially in more danger interacting with others because you're not being able to see them and they're not being able to see you. And then that then increases the likelihood that force will have to be used one way or the other, which then is going to see you more horrific things and more walls and more bad things. And, and it spirals up out of control, which it sounds like potentially where we are in certain places. A thousand percent. I uh, think you nailed it. You know, it, and that's what it looks like. It looks like, you know, when you don't understand something, think of think of times in your life when you've been fearful of something and how that makes you feel internally. People have to feel safe first before anything else can happen. Sure. 
And if you're fearful in that moment, I don't necessarily mean that someone's going to kill you in that moment, or maybe, but I mean just in that moment, if you're fearful of whatever that looks like, you're going to carry a, a, a level of protection around you for that. And, Absolutely. You know, when I teach, when I teach de-escalation and, 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 and overcoming the obstacle implicit bias and those things, I talk about a, a coyote who's, who's in the corner of the room and he's got a trap on his foot, right? I show a picture of this coyote with his teeth all, you know, he's baring his teeth and he's got his foot caught in a trap. I say, you know, how many of you in here would feel to help this coyote, like in this moment, right? And, and you do, you want to help him. I'm like, do you know what the problem is? Well, yeah, it's pretty obvious. Right. The foot's caught in a trap, it's, it's, it's blatantly obvious. Well, do you know how to solve that problem? Well, yeah, take the trap off the foot. Like I legit see the problem, know the problem, can solve the problem in that moment, absolutely. I said, well, what do you think would happen if you ran right up to that coyote in that moment to do that? Well, bite you, yeah, he'll yeah. bite you. I'm like, yeah, he will, he'll bite you, a thousand percent he'll bite you. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense, coyote, I'm here to help you. Why would you bite me? It doesn't make sense. I know the problem, I know the solution, hell, I'm here to solve the problem. I'm not part of the problem, I'm here to help you. Would you expect that coyote? Yeah, I'd expect, would you be mad at him for biting you? Well, no, no. Hmm. Well, why? Well, because he's scared. He's fearful, he's in pain. I say, yeah. And and he doesn't, he, he can't think about anything else in that moment except being safe and doing whatever he needs to protect himself. Even though I am not part of the problem and I'm going to actually solve the problem, he would still bite me. And you see, I would expect that. I would expect that in this moment because I can, I can wrap my mind around that. Because hell, I don't speak coyote. I can't tell the coyote this, that, either. And the truth is, it's so much different when it's involving people. You see, with the coyote, I'm not going to take it personal. I know, I know he's hurting and he's fearful, and I know that I'm here to solve the problem. I know it's not about me. Right. But in law enforcement, when we're dealing with human beings and we're dealing with people, we have this different way of thinking. We think, you're a person, I'm a person. You should know I'm here to help you. How dare you treat me bad? Mm. How dare you? I'm here to help you. Hell, I know what the problem is, and I see the solution. I'm here to help you. How dare? Listen, you call me back when you're going to treat me better, and then mm. maybe I'll help you. You see, then we, that's how we take things personal, because I expect you to treat me a certain way because I'm here to help you. And so it's easy for us to take this personal, and then we become part of the problem. But the truth is, in this moment, and if I could just step back for just a second, get into my own heart, say, I know I'm here to help. I know I'm not part of the problem. I don't bring a problem with me, but I recognize that in this moment, this person might not be able to see that. So what does that look like? How can I help you see in this moment that I am not part of the problem for you today? I'm actually here to become part of the solution. What does that look like? How can I meet you? And that looks like listening. That looks like seeing and connecting and that compassion and recognizing that in this moment, you may be escalated, but maybe that's because you believe I'm not going to help you. Maybe that looks like the wolf, the coyote in the trap. And if I become part of that problem, I take it personal, all I'm gonna do is make it escalate. As you're saying this, and I'm thinking, I'm putting myself in the position of the police officer, I would think that the, the, the initial fear, anxiety, whatever that is, and coming across someone who appears angry with me, for whatever the reason is, I know it's not me, but that initial fear, that anxiety, whatever that is, I would, there's, there would be a significant effort for me to be able to lean into that mm -hmm. and to overcome it and move past it in that moment. That's where confidence in yourself, grounding, confidence in your skill set, and and distance, right? Having having time, giving yourself the time to be able to respond so that you you aren't forced into a situation where where you have to react quickly, right? Giving yourself the ability to use the tools that you have and the skill set that you have to be successful, I think helps with that. But so I'm, I'm thinking, I don't know how often an officer has to qualify or re-qualify or recertify with a handgun. And maybe you have to do similar work with a taser and maybe hand-to-hand -hand combat. But how do you train somebody 
to walk past that fear, that momentary fear in a situation where it'd be okay to do that. If we were an observers looking on the outside as a teacher, you would say, okay, in this case, you're going to be fine. Look past that fear, lean into it, walk past it, and be able to see this person. How do you train for that? Because you can't read it in a book, right? I mean, you could read it, but I don't know how you... If you if you put me on a firing range and I'm firing towards a 10 yards at a, at a target and you see me off by two inches to the right, you can sit there and say, David, I want you to hold the gun this way and move the gun this way and you could really zero me in. But I don't know how you're going to do that. How do you do that with a police officer? How with, you mean with developing that skill set? Developing that skill set of leaning into... Education? Right, of leaning in and, and, and moving past that, that fear that's going to seem to be inherent in just just the job itself. How do you train that over and over and over again, much like you would have to, I assume, with a firearm so that firing the gun becomes second nature because you need it to be second nature in a situation like that? It's not a simple answer other than to say practice and scenario-based training and, and implementing a skill set of, you know, what it looks like to communicate effectively with others and deflect and redirect derogatory comments or, 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 or bad actions towards you, if, if it's something that's a, a physical concern, we need to physically control. It, it, that's, that's the reality of it. Uh, I'm not going to allow somebody with an, uh, a knife to come up and stab me just because I feel like, oh, maybe I could talk nicer to them. Sure. Like, I, I mean, that's not what we're talking about. But what we are talking about is once I do get that scene safe, secure, where people are in a position where they can't physically hurt me or others in that moment, then I have all the time in the world. Then there's no hurry. But how do you train that? So you've secured Which the part? scene, you've secured the scene, no one's got a gun, but you, how do you train someone to be empathetic, I guess, is really where I'm going. So I think it's multifaceted. Okay. Well, let me start by saying I think there's a skill set that could be taught to anyone. I think anyone can learn, say, like you're saying, okay, move the gun a little bit to the I can teach you a skill set. I can say, hey, use, listen, empathize, ask, paraphrase, summarize. When you're dealing with someone who's, you know, escalating, you want to help them calm down, you know, blah, 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 blah. What does empathy look like? Well, it looks like reassuring somebody, right? Saying, gosh, I'm sorry you're feeling that way. Hey, I, you know, you can see this is hard for you. Anybody can say those words, right? So there's a skill set that anybody can learn. But I think the challenge comes into exactly what you're saying. I don't think you can... I don't think you can make a person who doesn't feel empathy, care, concern, and compassion for others. I don't think you can make them feel that. I think that's where recruitment, yeah. employment, background investigation, psychological profile, interview process, I think that's where weeding out people who want to come into the profession of law enforcement who want to come into this profession because they want to harm others, because they they enjoy power and control because the reason that they're wearing the uniform is to abuse the authority. And I think we already have a system in place that does that overall. Mm -hmm. But I think what it might look like is recognizing that this empathy piece is so valuable, that this compassion piece is so valuable, that we invest time, attention, energy, money, resources, whatever that takes, into to making that be valuable for those that we hire, for what we teach them, for what we expect of them, for how they must face the community and vice versa. That doesn't mean, do not misunderstand that I say that we let, we undervalue the hard skill sets sure. at all. We have to have those skill sets. Thousand percent we have to have those skill sets. But what I think we need to do more, and I believe we're getting in that direction already, is valuing this piece that we're talking about today and making it be necessary. There's got to be balance. And also, I will say that all one of the beautiful things about this career that I've enjoyed most is there are ways to be all of those things. Like what I mean is, there are so many different things you can do in this career to be successful and to make a difference and to make an impact. And I think that what your skill set and your things that you enjoy, the things that you're good at, where those pieces shine, what you enjoy most, there's something in that for each person. There's a, a specialized unit, there's a, you know, whatever. But there is one common thread 
in all of them. And that's being able to communicate effectively, whether mm-hmm. it be with citizens that you are talking with after you've just kicked in a door to a drug house and you have got everybody on the ground. You know, uh, Chip Huth has an incredible way of describing that and what he did with his team in in learning the value of empathy and uh, and how to, yeah, we have to come in hard. We've got to get control of the scene. But then why can't we treat people and see people with dignity and respect and treat people as doggone human beings and say, hey, you know what? This was a really scary event. I know that this was upsetting. What do you need in this moment? And how can I help you with that? And we can do that when we have a scene safe and secure. So recognizing the value of those things is important. I want to shift gears for a little bit as we close out the show. I want to talk a little bit about the last few years for you at KCBD. You became a diversity officer at that point, um, or the diversity officer. I guess there was no, you were the diversity officer at that point. Tell me a little bit about that, what that evolved into, and then maybe a little bit for our, our audience as to what you're doing now. Yeah, so basically what that was was I was a liaison between the community and the department and the department the community. I helped elevate the needs of the community and advise command staff on what those needs are and, and develop some strategies on how we can meet those needs, offered ideas and suggestions to implement new policies and procedures to be supportive. In that role, I was also the LGBTQ liaison officer, so I focused mostly on that facet of the community and really trying to work hard to build relationship and and also worked within the department to be a liaison between officers. You know, officers would come to me who were struggling with maybe coming out or not, or maybe having challenges or doing mediation between officers, doing mediation between officers in the community or community members, training, educating law enforcement as to what the community needs in order to feel safe and seen and protected and all those things. And it was really challenging. It really felt a whole lot like I was kind of a punching bag. You know, it felt a whole lot like I I was hated, not hated, but I was looked down on by the police department because I quote unquote sympathized with the community and I was looked down on by the community because I'm a police officer and the truth is I'm working tirelessly to to just try to make both sides feel safe seen heard valued and 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 respected well you you mentioned one thing to me and you alluded to before you said one of the most difficult things that you've ever experienced is you were looking in the eyes of someone that, that appeared to hate you, and you realized that you were you would be willing to take a bullet for that person. Well, I think what it felt most like was recognizing and knowing that I would literally die, take a bullet for a random stranger. I would. I know this to be true. Yet to think that that person would fear me because mm. of the uniform I wear was the moment when I realized that was the hardest part of my whole career. Yeah, it, it was gut-wrenching, and it's a very driving force. It really made, it really sparked my need to make a difference because I'm not the only police officer who feels like that. Mm. It, it's, it, it, and, and realizing that is a very driving force for me to want to make a difference, and that is why I'm still doing it. That is why, you know, it's time for me to put the uniform down. I mean... I mean, I've, I've definitely aged out for sure of, of that, that part, if you will, but I'm just not done yet. I'm so purpose-driven, and, and I, get, I get the joy of being completely supported in it now. I work for Synergy Services, which is an organization that's really a domestic violence advocacy-based organization that serves Clay, Platte, and Ray counties, but they do so many amazing, incredible things to help the community, to help children, to help youth who who are maybe homeless or don't don't have a safe place to be or have maybe been kicked out of their home or have abuse at home or whatever, and they just need to come in and do a little laundry. I mean, we, we provide dental care, health care for people who don't have resources otherwise. We provide safety and shelter for victim survivors of domestic violence. I could literally do an entire show just talking about the great things that Synergy does. And when I retire, I had, got, I had the privilege to work with him for about 10 years 
during my last 10 years of my career and build a, a, a strong relationship and feel more, a lot more like family to me. And when I retired, they asked if I would come work for them. They created a, a position for me there, and we called it a community police liaison. And they basically just said, Kim, just do what you do. Tell us how we can support you. Wow. And I'll be doggone if they haven't shown that to be true. I've been there for two years now, and they have done nothing but support me in every single thing. And because of that, great things have been able to happen. We've developed programs to help with the co-occurrence of domestic violence and animal cruelty. I had no idea my whole career overlooked that. I had no idea how many animals, how, how batterers use the love of animals to have power and control over their intimate partners. I had no idea how much from abusing, threatening to abuse, killing, starving to death pets, to forcing a victim to relinquish their pet or throw them out in the woods. The list, I could give you a million scenarios. So I've been able to develop a program to help animal services officers who are out in the field engage with victims of domestic violence and get them in contact with resources where they didn't have that opportunity before. And I still get to play with recruits. I, my favorite joy in my whole career was getting to teach recruits. I taught basic training for the last eight years of my career. So I still get to play with, I say play, because it's my <laughs> true joy. I still get to teach recruits and I teach I teach tactical communication de-escalation. I teach divert, I, I, also t do a lot of teaching and training throughout the whole metro area, well, naturally, on diversity and inclusion, overcome the obstacle of implicit bias. Literally, whoever asks, I will teach. So I've trained police. I've trained mental health professionals. I still do all of the crisis intervention team officers training through Mid-America CIT as well as Tri-County CIT. I trained through the Government Training Institute at Mid-America Regional Council. I became, I'm now the public safety commissioner for Kansas City, Missouri on the LGBTQ commission. So I get to, to have a, a little bit of a platform to help uh, elevate the needs of a community who's, you know, consistently being targeted and attacked in some form or fashion and helping get those voices heard and elevated and trying to get needs met through through a city that is very supportive overall to the LGBTQ community, but helping helping build those bridges, helping educate law enforcement on what that looks like, helping educate the community on law enforcement, helping my brothers and sisters in law enforcement feel valued and seen and appreciated and respected and hopefully never have another brother or sister die by their own hands and have another community member fearful to reach to law enforcement. It should not be. People should not fear to call police in their moment of need and crisis and vulnerability. They should feel that we're there to protect and serve them. That is what we are there to do. The community should feel that way, but they need us to show up and show them that they can as well as us hoping that they'll feel that way about us. We've we've got to we've got to do that, and that's incumbent upon us. It's it, it. People in a position of power have a tendency to expect others to respect that power. Law enforcement should be in a position of earning the trust in order to get that respect, hmm. not causing people to fear us, but causing people to respect us because of how we show up to serve and protect them. That's, that's how we will win the war of have, having violence in our community. Kim, first of all, thank you for your service and thank you for your willingness to endure what you did for the betterment of the community. And, and I'm just, I frankly am excited as I see you now and thinking about the energy that was you had you had to use as a, a young Air Force MP that that now being able to use that energy in in, in such a positive way I, I I almost feel like you've been set free to to do all the awesome things that you've always wanted to do and you have the life experience and the knowledge and the people around you to do those things and how wonderful is that it's amazing and you know the the one thing I want to say about that that makes all the doggone difference is we have a chief of police who values that. Kansas City, Missouri has a chief of police, Stacy Graves, who values that. Hmm. 
it is who she is at her core. And because of that, these things are going to start, we're going to see these changes occur. And this is how I get to continue to work with Kansas City, Missouri Police Department. I get to now work with the, the community police division and most specifically the LGBTQ liaison who is the first full-time community police liaison wow. or LGBTQ liaison Kansas City, Missouri Police Department's ever had. And Chief Graves made that happen within the first three days that she became chief. That's how much value she places on building bridges of trust and, and respect and legitimacy and, and relationships with the community. And that's what makes the difference when people in a position of power who can make those changes and be supportive in that arena when they are, that's when change happens. Because it can't just come from the people who's got the boots on the ground. Those are the people who are seen the most, but it has to be supported. It has to be supported. Because if it's not, then those people just get beat down. Kim, thank you so much for being here today. I hope we can continue this discussion during another episode. Will you come back maybe to I'd love to. To talk to us some I, more. I appreciate that. I appreciate that opportunity. I think, you know, people matter. It matters. It does. When, when any any opportunity to make a difference, I I fully wholeheartedly embrace and I, I I'm thankful for. Thanks for being here. This is Jaws of Justice on ninety point one KKFI. It's the 420 Drug War News. Today we close out our discussion with Mr. Tris Tristone. He of Bend, Oregon, works for uh, KPOV as a reporter and for High Desert Pure selling THC and CBD products. Now, are the, uh, do they have those situations where they're trying to ban uh, smoking in apartments or within uh, dwellings at all? Well, yeah, and, you know, they're not discriminating against cannabis. I mean, it's any, smoking anything. And that is, you know, it does create issues for people over the years. People in public housing had issues with that, even when they had a card, um, because the federal because the federal government was chipping in on their rent. Um, it did create issues, and a lot of that has changed um, because you don't necessarily have to smoke anymore to consume cannabis. And the most concern really has more to do with smoking than what, what it is you're smoking at this stage of the game. So people have vapor <laughs> cartridge options here, a whole bunch of different varieties of edible products as well. Um, we're pretty creative in finding ways to get cannabis in your body here in Oregon. And so it's not just smoking anymore. It's still my favorite way to do it. But, um, yeah, we've got other ways for people that are somewhat restricted at that. Well, hang on just a minute. We're going to take a little break, and then we'll be back with more of Mr. Tristone. This is Rachel Lee Cook with a remake of her Brain on Drugs ad. The war on drugs is ruining people's lives. It fuels mass incarceration. It targets people of color in greater numbers than their white counterparts. It cripples communities. It costs billions. And it doesn't work. Any questions? Uh, uh, we're going to have to wrap it up here in just a moment here, Tris. I want to thank you once again for your kind words, for the uh, products, the CBD products you're selling or uh, sharing. And uh, we'll give you 30 seconds to wrap up here, sir. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. Once again, Dean, anything I can do to help you and KPFT, I'm always there for you. My little community radio station here in Bend, Oregon, we are also a Pacifica affiliated. So uh, uh, we've got the brothers and sisters going together here with you. And I can't, I'm just going to plead to your listeners to please allow these conversations to take place right now. More than ever, we need to have free speech out there. Look at mainstream media. You can't watch it without drug commercials, and uh, yeah. you're not going to get that. So thanks so much for supporting Dean and, and Community Radio as well. All right, Tris. Thank you so much. Uh, say hi to Stacy, Y'all uh, keep up the good work. Thank you, sir. All right. Have a great weekend. I am Dean at DrugTruth.net.
right nearing my problem What am I gonna do now? Am I gonna make it? Somewhere, somehow Well, maybe I'm not supposed to know We hope you enjoyed today's show and that we leave you with something to think about something to talk to your neighbors about and a reason to get involved. As always, the opinions expressed are those of the host and the guests of Jaws of Justice Radio, not of KKFI, the Midcoast Radio Project Incorporated, its staff or volunteers. You can find our calendar of events and a link to our show episodes on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page. You can always listen to us live and find our podcast on the KKFI website, kkfi.org. If you have a show idea or want to help produce the show, you can send an email inquiry or comment to kkfi.org forward slash contact. This is Jeff reminding you our outro music is Higher Ground from the Playing for Change CD.